Okay, it's Sunday, September 10th, 2023. Mike is very loud. Just here. <clears throat> okay, it's Sunday, September 10th, 2023. I want to welcome you all to our Sheepgate Fellowship Sunday service. Um, it's a beautiful day. It's a wonderful time to be with all of you. And uh, we welcome you to service today. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, as the Lord invites us to his sanctuary uh, to worship him as a church and as a body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, it's always an honor uh, to be together with you on the Lord's day to worship him. Let's rise from our seats and recite together the Apostles' Creed as a confession of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. As we live our lives, there's a constant need for us to remind ourselves of the cornerstone that Christ is to our faith, to our salvation. It's truth, and it, uh, it's an absolute necessity for us uh, to be reminded of because we're so prone to forget. So as we read from Psalm 118, 22 to 24 as a call to worship, let's prepare our hearts and have a prayer within our hearts to come before God, uh, seeking this reminder and also um, allowing it to really saturate into the depths of our hearts and our minds so these things would not be lost to us. If it helps, you can certainly close your eyes and uh, maybe it'll help you um, to understand what the psalmist is saying to us today. So I'll read to you Psalm 118, verses 22 to 24. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Amen. Brothers and sisters, at this time, I'd like for us to pray. Uh, pray a prayer of confession of sin. Pray a prayer of repentance as we come before him. We're going to pray um, as we are reminded of the holiness of God and the necessity for us to be in constant Reminder of our own unholiness and the transgressions we continuously commit before him. Um, so at this time, let's repent and pray a prayer of confession as we come before God in worship. Let's pray. As First uh, John 1, 9 reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. With faith in Christ, let us pray at this time silently in our hearts.
Lord, we come before you at this time, reminded of our sinfulness. We confess them before you. The sins that we commit daily, the sins we commit constantly within our hearts. We don't come before you um, simply as those who are seeking to take advantage of your grace, uh, but humbled by the grace that you freely offer. We thank you so much for your mercy upon us, and we thank you for your mediator Christ who came and died for us. In his name we pray. Amen. Proverbs 28.13 tells us, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Of course, the source of that compassion is God. God's free will that he so freely gave us uh, extends mercy upon us, the transgressor, the ones who sin against him. Uh, Even though we're not deserving of this grace, he gives to us because he chooses to do so. And how wonderful and glorious is this. Well, having been reminded of the compassion and mercy of our God, let's turn to question 16 of our Heidelberg Catechism. It's on the screen for you, that, uh, for those of you who need it. Question 16 reads, Why must he, being the mediator, be a true and righteous man? So we're, we've been building up to this question. Uh, so we talked about how uh, there must be right reconciliation, and it can be, only be done by a mediator that is not creature. It must be... Uh, It must be something that is pure and holy, right? So why must he be a true and righteous man? This is an interesting question. He cannot simply only be creature, but he must be a true and righteous man. Here's the answer. It reads, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned, that being us, should pay for sin, right? He must be a righteous man. Because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. In other words, none of us can pay for the sins of one another. Only one who is righteous and truly man can pay for our sin. Of course, he can't only be truly man. We know that Christ shared in two two distinct natures, that being truly man and truly God. And so we're reminded of this. And only, of course, Jesus Christ uh, has the resume, so to speak, uh, to be able to to be our mediator and our um, only one who can, who can really free us from sin by giving his life for it, right? Because only he himself is righteous. So we're reminded of this today. It's a glorious reminder. It's a daily reminder that we all need. So praise be to God for his son, Jesus Christ. Well, at this time, I'd like to pray for us um, and lift up a prayer of intercession towards our God as we begin this time of worship. Um, Our praise team will lead us in a time of song following this prayer. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Good, gracious, merciful God, we thank you so much. We come to you this day as you've asked your people to gather in your sanctuary. Every week we gather and we ask, O Lord, that at this time that we dedicate ourselves to you. It's so easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking of church as um, a routine of our Christian lives instead of uh, really enjoying and relishing this opportunity to worship you. Uh, So much of our lives are caught up in things that are self-centered and focused on the self uh, that we don't think so much of you and your household. Lord, we thank you so much for your people gathered here today, that the ones gifted with faith through your mercy and grace are here present worshiping and praising you The prayers we lift and the scripture we read may be a blessing to us all. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit dwell within us at this time. That through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we are revealed to the truth of your word. 
and revealed uh, to the things that we ought to know and hear at this time so they will compel and convict our hearts to be transformed into Christ-likeness. We ask, O oh Lord, that the radiance of Christ will be made known to us today. Um, God, we pray for the world at this time. We see Morocco being hit with a devastating earthquake, thousands of people dead, and I'm sure many more will be discovered. Lord, it is um, terrifying and sad news to hear such things coming from uh, that part of the world. And so we pray for them, their health, their safety, and their recovery from the earthquake. But more than that, more than the physical uh, rebuilding or restructuring of that nation and its people, we ask for uh, a building up of the church in Morocco. We ask, O oh Lord, that missionaries who are at work in that place of the world, that they are faithful in their duty as heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that at this time of devastation and horror and loss and hopelessness, that they can present the gospel of Jesus Christ um, not so much as a solution to their current reality, but a solution to the ultimate reality, for the wage of sin is death. And so would the Church of Morocco uh, be a voice for the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who need to hear it most at this time? Would you be with the people of Morocco and be with them, Lord God, that they too would come to bend their knee at the foot of the cross? Lord, we also pray for the continual efforts uh, against the wildfires that are happening across the world, it seems, whether it be in Europe and North America, and we see sort of the devastating results of those things. We see so many people homeless and uh, without much, and so we pray for them as well, Lord God, that you would be with them in their recovery. And in the same sense with Morocco, we pray for uh, faith to be conjured through your will in the hearts of many, that they would come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. Lord, we also pray that at this time, as thousands if not millions of believers around the world are gathered, whether it be an underground church in North Korea or in China, or whether it be um, a, a just a regular local church in here in Toronto or down south in the States or parts of Europe, uh, we ask, O oh God, that believers would give you worship and, and, and lift worship to you that, is so, that you are so deserving of and that is pleasing to you. We ask, O oh God, that these things would not, not be taken for granted, the opportunity to gather in this way. We thank you so much, and as we sing these songs to you at this time, would you truly be exalted, both in what we sing and how we sing, and in our hearts, in our innermost selves. We thank you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's rise from our seats and sing together hymns to the Lord.
wonderful to see all of you once again in the house of the Lord as we go to his word. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 8. Initially, this sermon started off uh, up to verse 13, actually. We're going to do Mark 9, 1 to 13. Um, I did you a favor. I ended up preparing the sermon, and it was just way too long. So I divided it into two parts. We'll be looking at verses 10 to, uh, 9 to 13 next week. Today, we'll look up to verse 8. So you're welcome for that. I'll save you a little time today. Um, anyways, let's turn to it. As we come in our Mark series, uh, we're very much past now the halfway point of Mark's gospel. So we're, I guess, in a way, nearing the end here. We come to, uh, likely, an episode of Jesus' ministry, life and ministry on earth, that many of you are familiar with if you've grown up in the church or maybe you faintly remember some of these things. But we're at the transfiguration of Christ. I don't know in my lifetime if I've ever heard um, a sermon solely on the transfiguration of Christ. I, I did take some time to, this week to ponder that, and I, I'm not, I don't recall any particularly. I, I mean, certainly we've read this text. I just don't recall any particular sermon on this. So uh, if that's the case for you, I hope that this text will be um, quite revelatory for many of you uh, in your understanding of the transfiguration, the transfiguration of Christ. It's quite important. Let's read it together. Mark 9, verses 1. To eight. I'll read from my Bible. You can follow in yours. And Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. All at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Amen. The word of God. Um, I hope our camera is a little bit of lesser quality today because uh, I ended up burning my face yesterday. So I have this like really weird uh, tan. Um, I only say that just, just to kind of start off on a light mood. Um, today's sermon is entitled Jesus Alone. Um, of course, the last two words of our passage today. The, the text here on the transfiguration of Christ begins with, verse, in verse 1, is sort of a continuation of what we read last week. So last week we saw, of course, Peter's confession of Christ two weeks ago as being the Christ himself, right? And then Christ's teaching on the necessity of the suffering of Christ. So he gives definition to the Christ, Right? This is what the Son of God, or the Christ, the Messiah, will accomplish. If you believe that, then you must believe that Jesus, the person before you, who is the Christ, will do these things. So suffer, die, get rejected, be killed, all of that stuff, right? So that's kind of what we looked at last week. And then on the heels of that, we find ourselves at the Transfiguration. One of the hallmark moments of Jesus' ministry that many in the church are familiar with is the Transfiguration. Right? So many of you may, I think most of you are, quite familiar with this particular episode. 
What is also an unfortunate hallmark of the church is that the church is unfamiliar with the purpose, meaning, and significance of the transfiguration of Christ. So if I, you know, surveyed the room here today and I asked you, write down what is the meaning, the purpose, and the importance of the transfiguration of Christ, not to demean you, including myself, I don't think many of us could answer it, uh, at least with precision, right? I think there's a general idea. That's a, it's a seminal moment. It's important. There's a lot of visual symbolism and imagery involved in this particular episode with Jesus. Uh, but I think many of us are lost to these things, the purpose, the meaning, and the importance. So you figure this sermon is going to center around exactly that. I'd like to try and break this down to you. That's precisely the reason this sermon became so long, and I had to divide it into two two sections because I don't want you to walk away today without knowing these seminal things. Now, many, if like me, are likely to be unable to even define the word transfiguration. We may know what happened at this moment, but we really don't know why. The transfiguration of Jesus is recorded for us in the synoptic gospels, that being Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's recorded for us three times, Matthew 17, Mark 9, we just read it here, and then Luke chapter 9. The term transfiguration in Greek is the Greek word metamorphothe, or metamorphosis in English is sort of something we hear a lot, right? Where the prefix meta, it means beyond, to be beyond, and the root word morpheus, aha, is a character from The Matrix, one of my favorite, meaning change, to change, so beyond change. This term simply means to change one's form, to become something beyond, meta, what they are. It is not to say that Jesus' transfiguration altered his very essence or being. That would be heretical to say. But rather, the form of his being was, um, was, was being changed. It's what was undergoing the change. Now, to be proper, his appearance is what changed to be exact, right? To be precise in the transfiguration. We're not saying that Jesus' essence or his very nature, whether it be the divine or the human, were being changed, right? It's just the appearance that was being changed. It's the form of his being. So that's what we're talking about when we refer to the transfiguration of Christ. Much like when he took on flesh to incarnate into the world. Nothing about the second person of the Trinity was altered in his incarnation, Nothing about the second person of the Trinity is being altered in his transfiguration. This term is uniquely used in the New Testament only regarding and in regards to Jesus Christ. It is exclusive to him, which really heightens the significance of the moment and the event that we just read today. But why now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, did he find it, or I guess God found it, necessary to go up to this mountain and have this transfiguration occur what exactly did this accomplish what did it mean and to what end did it serve if his ministry was building up to the cross we've been talking about in mark's gospel and if you've been coming to thursday bible studies john's gospel everything in the gospels build up everything builds up in their sort of unique storytelling way towards the cross the crucifixion of christ Right? So Mark does it a certain way, Luke does it a certain way, Matthew and John the same. But why at this point is it, is it, is it occurring? Is the transfiguration occurring? So if his ministry is building up to the cross, then how does the transfiguration play a role 
in that process of building up? This, these are some of the questions that we're going to try to analyze and answer. Now, I may not directly answer these questions for you, but keep them in mind, and I think they'll get answered as we sort of look at the text itself, and that's all we're really going to do today. Um, usually, I break down the text into sets of verses and then like give you sort of like an uh, easy way to follow the flow of the text. I thought it'd be more appropriate today to look at three elements of today's text. So three headers. One, six days later on a high mountain. That's going to be the first point. We're going to look at the six days later and the mention of the high mountain. And then the second, we're going to look at the radiance of Christ, so the transfiguration itself. And then finally, we're going to look at the elements of Moses and Elijah. So again, six days on a high mountain, radiance of Christ, and then Moses and Elijah. And I think answering these things, or at least defining these three things, will help us frame a better and much clearer and precise understanding of the transfiguration of Christ. So if you ever run into someone who asks you, hey, what is, what's the deal with the transfiguration of Christ? I hope you can provide an answer to them, right? So here we go. Six days later on a high mountain. We've got a lot of work to do, so follow with me in your Bibles. It begins in verse 2. Verse 1 is a continuation of what we read before. He's taught, I know it's a little bit confusing saying some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom. Uh, he's referring to not necessarily the end of time, right? Because obviously Jesus does not return a second time in the lifetime of the disciples. Uh, but he's referring to, I think, his own death on the cross. Anyways, we're standing there. Uh, we'll, uh, we're going to skip that part. We're going to go straight into verse 2. And we're at, the, we're at the very beginning or the outset of the transfiguration. So the first point, six days later on a high mountain. The first aspect of today's text that we ought to take into consideration is Mark's mention of time lapse and geography. These details are not provided lightly by Mark, simply to give us a sense of these matters, but to signal something far greater and to connect this passage to other passages in the Bible, namely the Old Testament. Now, the first thing to take notice uh, is the mention of six days, six days. Now, Mark is not one to typically provide such specific details of the passing time or the date, whether it be hours or days or weeks, it does not matter. We don't get mention of time too often. His way of moving the story along in his gospel throughout time is the use of such ambiguous phrases like, and then immediately, or and then, Right? So he just uses some of those conjunctions to skip along and move time across his gospel. But there are two parts of his gospel where he does provide this detail of time. The first being here in Mark 9 in refer referring to the transfiguration. And then later, five chapters later, in Mark 14 at the passion narrative where Jesus is crucified. Now what we have here then is a link that is being made from Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ six days ago and then to now where Jesus is transfigured revealing his true self to Peter now the the second reason Mark provides this detail is to connect the story to the Old Testament so if the first reason was to connect this episode of the transfiguration to the confession of Peter right as Jesus as the Christ then the second reason that he does this, or the six-day reference is made to us, is something a little bit more profound, I think. It provides this detail to connect the story to the Old Testament. I guess profound is not the right way to say it. It's just another reason, another profound reason, if you will. It connects the story to the Old Testament. Specifically, it connects it to Moses 
and his six days sojourning on, the, on Mount Sinai, where the law was given in Exodus 24. This connects the transfiguration narrative to the history of Israel itself, and it further establishes the fact that Jesus is, and this is sort of the thesis of the entirety of the transfiguration, Jesus is the culmination and he is the fulfillment of what has already come before him. He is the total accomplishment, the total culmination, and the total fulfillment of everything that has come before him. This, brothers and sisters, will be an ongoing theme in today's passage, so keep that in mind. Furthermore, we are also given the detail of geography. So if time connects this story to the confession of Peter, and it connects us to the Moses sojourning on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, and everything of the Old Testament, the why the geography? Why the mention of a mountain and the specificity that it is high? Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, the inner group of the 12. This is something we knew, that the 12 was, you know, the 12 disciples that Jesus uh, is commonly associated with. He had an inner group, Peter, James, and John. Not to say that he loved them more or that they were special in any case beyond the other, uh, the other disciples, but Jesus operated in this way. He had an inner group and he had an outer group. And then we know beyond the 12, he had like 72 and then even more after that, right? Hundreds of followers, um, but this is how he operated. So he takes his inner group and he goes up onto this high mountain mentioned by Mark. Now, some have speculated this mount to be Mount Hermon today, which really does not matter. The importance here is that the exact mountain is not of our concern. The emphasis is on this, that Jesus is on a mountain and it is high. Now, why would, be, why would this be important to anyone at all? Anyone familiar with Jesus in the Gospels knows this. He, they know that much of his seminal moments in ministry in his life on earth were done on mountains. Need evidence? Well, we find Jesus on mountains praying alone, preaching to the masses, Sermon on the Mount, calling his disciples, dying on a cross, and later, of course, giving the Great Commission. Mountaintops seem to be of importance geographically. The location should not be lost to us and should further deepen our understanding of this, that the transfiguration of Christ that we read today does indeed echo the Old Testament images of God and his people that were found at a mountain with the law of God being given as a means to govern his people. This is a very clear connector to Mount Sinai. And it's a very clear connector. I mean, obviously, we see Moses appear in this episode too to Moses and the law, right? Now, what the law was not meant to accomplish and could not accomplish on its own in terms of salvation, the Christ before us, the Christ here, present on this mountaintop, indeed will. And so not only is the Christ an extension of that Old Testament episode on Mount Sinai, he is the fulfillment of it. Okay, so if that's six days later on a high mountain, gives us the context, the environment, and everything we ought to know about sort of the background of this narrative, what actually happens here? Let's look at the radiance of Christ. Now, the very next thing that Mark abruptly tells us, right after giving us the geography, after giving us the time, he tells us this, Jesus was transfigured. As if we're just supposed to understand what that means, right? Look what it says, verse 2. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, John, brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. 
<laughs> like, is this like when the Power Rangers transform into like the Mighty Morphins or the Sailor Moon trans or what's her real name? Whatever her real name is to Sailor Moon, right? Like, is this just like a sudden transformation? Certainly not. I mean, in a way it was, but it must have been a little bit longer of a duration. But Mark just abruptly gives this to us. And he does this a lot in his text. Now, remember, in our introduction, I defined to you what transfiguration means, right? Meta beyond metamorphose to change. The meaning of transfigured. It means his form was changed. The appearance, the outer appearance of Christ was changed, not his nature. Jesus changing form is nothing new. For what do we know of the incarnate Christ? We, knew, we know that in his incarnation, he took on flesh. He took on a form that he did not have prior. He changed his form from baby to child to adult. He grew just like any of us. His form will change again in his resurrection. He'll have these marks in his hands that the doubting Thomas can touch. The form of his personhood is not to be confused as being or equivalent to his divine nature. And the Westminster Confession of Faith that we study together, it makes it clear that the divine and the human natures of Christ coexist, but do not mix. They aren't combined, if you will. This change in form, although temporary, is a glimpse for Peter and John and James of what is true about Jesus and what is to come. What is being revealed to them is who Jesus truly is, God in flesh. The inner is being shown on the outer, if you will, for the first time. It again echoes Moses at the cleft of a rock in Exodus, being shown finally the glory of God. And the burning bush where Moses came down from, seeing this bush and seeing the glory of God in his radiance, in his glow. There's a really interesting story, actually, about that particular uh, episode in Exodus where Moses at the burning bush, and you know how you know, the whole conversation ensues, go free my people, and he comes up with all these excuses, ends up going, right, because God burns with anger and uh, sends him anyway, right? Um, and then Moses comes down, and he's, like, really radiant, right? And his wife and everyone's like, whoa, this is crazy. Like, where, what happened, right? Well, that's the episode, right? This is a really interesting thing uh, that, that happened in, historically in the church. Um, during the medieval times and, like, sort of the Renaissance period in human history in Europe, uh, a prominent form of preserving biblical stories was through art, now, we can get into, like, Second Commandment violation stuff, but I think painting Moses is fine, right? So they started painting Moses, but at this time, the prominent language of Scripture, of biblical studies, was Latin, right? So the Bible was translated into what we call the Latin Vulgate. It has multiple sort of translations and um, versions of that. But in the Latin Vulgate, uh, the translators initially translated not from the original uh, Hebrew and Greek, um, or at least they tried to, but they translated it from the Greek, the total Greek, so what we call the Greek Septuagint. And when the Hebrew went to Hebrew to Greek to Latin, one of the words that was unfortunately translated incorrectly was when Moses comes down and he has this like radiance glowing about him, right? Um, the word that is used in Hebrew says rays, rays of light shone from his head. Um, but the Hebrew word for rays is also the Hebrew word for horns, right? It's the same word, horns, and rays are the same word. And so in the Greek, it translated into horns and then the Latin as well. And so what happened with these artists is they just took it literally in Latin as horns. And so they actually paint Moses. If you Google it now or later, whenever you 
don't want to pay attention anymore. Um, you can Google it and just Google like paintings of Moses during medieval times or old ancient European Moses paintings. You, he is always depicted in statues, paintings, and everything with horns on his head. It's like really weird, right? Um, none of this contributes to the sermon today, by the way. I just wanted to give you an interesting detail there. Uh, but anyways, that happened, right? So radiance is glowing. Moses' face is glowing. He comes down. And of course, the transfiguration echoes that. And of course, Moses is there. I mean, like, Moses was the first person to have this occur to him. Jesus is the second, but he's the better, right? That's the whole point of this entire narrative, isn't it? So what is being revealed to us in the radiance of Christ is who he truly is in his nature. Although his form looks like us, he is beyond us. And that's what's being revealed to Peter, James, and John. Okay, so if this is thus is the nature of God and the form of him as he reveals in physical manifestation, it is beyond meta, anything that any human is. The only descriptors that the apostles and Mark could use uh, to describe this transfiguration, to describe this seminal moment in Christ's ministry, is that he was exceedingly white. Exceedingly white. He was radiant. And that, <laughs> I love this detail, because every, every one of you who has a parent who is a dry cleaner, uh, or a family member that owns a dry cleaner, he, <laughs> Mark, the author, writes, no launderer could ever mimic such whiteness. I mean, he's just, a, he's just at a loss for words. Christ is in a form that has never before seen that the human language cannot encompass or properly describe such, such radiance, such beauty, such whiteness. Right? It's something that our language cannot encompass. The whiteness here of Christ is really referring to his purity. It's symbolizing his holiness. What makes this description so powerful is that the whole of Jesus is made radiant. The whole of Jesus, including what? Even his clothes. The entirety is made radiant. What does that tell us? It's a subtle detail, isn't it? But what does it tell us? It tells us this, that we ought to know that in Christ alone there is power to make all things pure, all things holy. To know that only in him lies the strength and ability to make us new. This is perhaps the meaning of such radiance. One day all of us will behold this radiance of Christ, the radiance of God himself. Some of you may have watched the movie Oppenheimer. There are scenes in that movie that I don't condone, but anyways, I think of Oppenheimer, uh, and I think of the scene where they all, and the whole movie builds up to this one scene, right? Where the, if you haven't watched it by now, this is your fault for not watching it, and also not knowing history, that's your fault. Um, the scene where they all wait for the first testing of the atomic bomb, and it finally blows up, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, years and years of work finally culminating in this one moment where this bomb explodes. Good for them, right? Okay, well, the anticipation and the jubilation that follows this explosion of a bomb, right? Remember that scene where they all have to put on those glasses or they have to put some kind of defensive measure for them to protect their eyes from the blasting light that would come from this bomb? Light so blinding that they had to shield themselves? Well, to behold the glory and radiance of Christ will be infinitely greater, infinitely greater. 
to see something with no comparison. What a marvel it must have been for Peter, James, and John that they were terrified. It was so beautiful that they were terrified. Does that make sense to you? Beauty usually does not lead to us being scared. Beauty usually leaves us in awe. But this was beauty infinitely above any beauty we have, any human had ever seen, that they were terrified. Why? Why are you ever terrified in anything in life? Because you don't know what you're looking at. You don't know if it's good or if it's going to hurt you. I feel sorry for the first alien that comes to Earth. You know why? By the way, I don't like necessarily believe in aliens, but let's just say they are. Like soulless aliens that don't need saving, right? Anyways, so aliens come. Um, I feel bad for that first alien. You know why? Because if they truly do come in peace, and they truly do come to just be like, wow, like I want to be friends with these earthlings, right? Like they're coming for good reasons. Like they just want to be our friends, right? Every movie in our entire lives has corrupted us to think that every alien that will ever come to this planet comes with bad reason. So your reaction to any alien that comes to this earth will be to attack or run. You will not extend your hand and be like, welcome to earth, right? Every movie has brainwashed you to think that aliens only have bad things on their agenda. So I feel bad for that first alien. It's going to take a lot to prove us wrong. All these movies have brainwashed us. But that's what the unknown does to us. It puts us in a state of fear because we just don't know what we're beholding. But brothers and sisters, one day in heaven's glory, we will behold this radiance. And when we do, instead of being terrified, we will be utterly humbled by it. Which leads me to the final point, and perhaps one of the most important details of the transfiguration, and it is this, the presence of Moses and Elijah. Many have wondered, like, how do how Peter, James, and John, who've never even met Moses and Elijah, even know what Moses and Elijah looked like, and how did they know that this was Moses and Elijah? Did they just guess, or did they appear and go, Hey, Peter, James, John, I'm Moses. Hey, Peter, James, John, I'm Elijah. Did they introduce themselves? Like, what was going on here? Well we, well, we can just be certain if it's in God's word, it must be true. But beyond that, it's that God likely revealed who they were, right, in ways that wasn't recorded for us. Keeping that in mind, in verse 4, we see uh, the presence of Moses and Elijah appear for the first time. And many have read the presence of Moses and Elijah and there have been two sort of dominating theories in Christian scholarship for the last, you know, sort of modern history. Um, and many of you may have read something like this. And I don't mean to, if you come in here and you believe this, I don't mean to make a heretic out of you. I'm just giving you some information that I think will help you provide, well, provide, provide for you a better understanding of the presence of these two figures. Okay? So, many have read Moses and Elijah and their presence representing the law and the prophets. Have you heard this before? Moses and Elijah are here because Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. Jesus being the fulfillment of both. Now that's true. He is the fulfillment of the law. He is certainly the fulfillment of the prophets. We know that this is true because scripture records it for us. Now although there is a truth to that statement, and although it fits really nicely in our understanding, doesn't it like package nicely in that way? 
Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophets. That's why they're there. It would not be appropriate to read that into their appearance. It wouldn't be. It would be odd that Elijah would represent the prophets or the prophecies, considering this, that the most prominent prophet of Israel's history was Isaiah. So why would Elijah be there? Others have proposed the idea of this, that Moses and Elijah represent deliverance. They are deliverers in Israel's history. Moses delivering God's people from Egypt and slavery, and Elijah delivering Israel from idol worship against the Baal worshipers. It's a clever proposition, but again, prominent deliverers in Israel's history beyond that of Elijah. How about Joshua? How about David and others like them? They would be likelier candidates if that was intended to be the message. James Edward writes, um, Edwards writes and proposes something I think that is much clearer and much more fitting to Mark's gospel. A lot of scholarship, I think, is leaning this way now. Moses and Elijah are representatives of what Edwards and others call the prophetic tradition. Prophetic tradition. Right? So they're not exclusively representing two distinct things. They are both representing a package of things. And we call it the prophetic tradition. And the prophetic tradition anticipates the Messiah, Jesus Christ. For when you read the Old Testament prophecies, what do you see? The promise of a servant to come. The promise of a savior to come. The promise of a Messiah. That's the purpose of the prophetic tradition. Even the Jews understood that. They just did not see Jesus to be that person. Now, instead of Moses being there for the law and Elijah for the prophets, both are there for both. Moses himself giving the law to Israel, given to him by God from Mount Sinai, and then also being seen in Israel's history as what they call an eschatological prophet. This is not made up. It's mentioned to us in Deuteronomy 18. Elijah has his own episode at Sinai, if you read your Bibles keenly. 1 Kings 19, there too he receives God's word famously. Uh, if you read it, you're going to laugh, so I'm not going to mention what happens there, but read 1 Kings 19 and see what happens with Elijah at Sinai. And Elijah, of course, was a man who saw no death in going to heaven. He's just ascended there, a monumental prophet of Israel's past, both having connections to law and prophecy. Right? Now, we will give this more thought next week when it comes to Elijah and the prophecies, but the Old Testament even provides mention of both in the same breath. You ever read Malachi chapter 4? Moses' law is told to be remembered, and then Elijah immediately to be anticipated as the one who will come to turn hearts to repentance. Moses, Elijah. The role of both is clear in the Old Testament, to anticipate and prepare the coming of the Messiah, the true Savior. Their work and ministry, Moses and Elijah, prepares for Christ's work and ministry. Does that make sense? And here on this high mountain that Christ stood with his, two, with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, three Jewish men, ordinary men, Moses and Elijah, incredible figures of Israel's past appear before them. Christ the, then being made radiant and transfigured into glory. They were talking with Jesus. They came to Jesus to talk to him. It wasn't Jesus making a phone call to heaven and saying, can I have a conversation with Moses and Elijah, please? Bring them down. No, this was two men, prominent figures of Israel's past, 
men who were certainly recognizable by even the most uh, lowly of Jewish people, coming to see Jesus, to talk with him. They are the ones who are confiding in him, so as to indicate to us subordination to Jesus. They appeared before him, but then the cloud of God comes. It conceals the sight of those who are there, and a declaration from heaven is made that the voice of God speaks, and it says that Jesus is God's beloved son to listen to him, something we last heard at Jesus' baptism. But before in the baptism, it was declared to Jesus in private, and here it is being heard by Peter, James, and John as well. For the first time, mankind hearing in 500-something years the voice of God confirming everything that has transpired in the previous chapter, the confession of Peter as, as Jesus being the Christ and the self-revelation of Christ as being the Christ who must suffer, and then here we have the transfiguration. This is truly the Messiah that was promised, but just like that, in an instant, in a moment, everything disappears, and then right before them, Jesus is there alone. It's a little dramatic, but there's so much meaning to this. He stood with Elijah and Moses. He had clouds surround him. He had the voice of God speaking and declaring things about him. And then in a moment, nothing. Why? Here's Edward's description. Listen carefully. I think this is so profound. The presence of Moses and Elijah as forerunners attests to the culmination of a purposeful revelation of God's Son with the history of Israel. So you have the history of Israel as the backdrop, and then you have Jesus standing over them as their authority. Moreover, although Moses and Elijah speak with Jesus, they do not remain with him. For when the cloud is removed in verse 8, both figures vanish. Thus, the witness of Moses and Elijah points to Jesus and culminates in him, but their witness does not rival his. Their word and work are consummately fulfilled in Jesus. They are servants of God and prophets of God indeed. Nothing that divine witnesses um, to Jesus as the Son of God. So the whole point is, you know Moses, you know Elijah, you know how great they are, you know all the great things they did? Their work is done. It was temporary. All you need is this guy right in the middle. This is the best of the best. Nothing beats this guy. Here's my conclusion for today. I'd like to conclude our time in today's passage with a final thought. And I believe it is really the thrust of what we ought to take away from today's teaching. Peter's boldness is continued here as in verse 5. Um, he suggests to Jesus, I mean, what a bold man, right? Like Jesus, Moses, Elijah, and he has the nerve to be like, hey, you need a place to stay tonight, right? Let me build some tents for us, right? And the fact that he had three tents really, I mean, I mean, there were four of them there. I don't know what his initial plan was. Like, why, why did he have only three? 
It just so happens to be enough for these three, right? But anyways, in verse 5, Peter boldly steps up and he suggests the building of three tents. Or the word in my Bible, in, in most Bibles, it'll say tabernacles to house Jesus, to house Moses and Elijah. Now, some have deemed this response from Peter as being like mortal foolishness, right? Just human foolishness, just kind of demean them a little bit. Now, on the contrary, what do we see in the Old Testament? Well, we see Israel, a nation that what? Wandered in the desert, tabernacling God, right? Isn't that what we saw? They built tents and an even larger tent among them for the Lord. He lived and dwelt among his people. It was symbolized and represented through his presence in the tabernacle. Remember the cloud of glory? We just also happened to see a cloud here. The Jews have an entire holiday called the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. If you come to Thursday Bible study, you know what all of that is about. That remember this very aspect of Israel's past. Peter's suggestion here is in fact fitting. It's not foolishness. But much like in Genesis, remember Genesis 3, when God replaces the leafy clothing of Adam and Eve that they used to clothe their shame, God clothes them with better, skin, with better clothing, with animal skin. For the very first time in all of creation history, life is killed to, sh to clothe the shame of the guilty. An incredible precursor to the work that Christ will do on the cross as his righteousness is imputed upon us to cover our guilt and shame, that he would pay the price for our sin and we would be rewarded with salvation in him. Where God provides a better means of protection than anything we could ever construct ourselves, pointing to the work that his son would do on the cross. We find here in today's passage, Peter's offer of tents or tabernacles being replaced with what? God's offer of a cloud. And he conceals everything in a cloud, and a cloud of glory from where his voice is heard, and as the cloud disperses and vanishes, what is left but in their sight, the only means of salvation, the way, the truth, and the life, the true Son of God, the one and only. In all his glory and radiance, made known to them, this is my son. Listen to him. Where the Old Testament tabernacle symbolized God's presence with God's people, now it will be the son who will be God's mediator and symbol of our presence with God. The son is our tabernacle, if you will. But this tabernacle lives among us, and he, in fact, came to us. He is Emmanuel. God with us. John 1.14, he became fleshed and lived among us. And those who place their faith in this Son of God, Jesus Christ, as their Savior and Lord, will they be housed in the tent of God. They will be adopted into the family of God and enjoy his presence forever. So brothers and sisters, be reminded of this glorious truth today that Christ came for you. He accomplished everything on your behalf that anything before him could not, but simply pointed 
always to him. Christ came and died for us that all things were fulfilled at last. Everything Moses did, everything Elijah did, everything anyone ever, ever did, Christ fulfilled. May we be humbled by this truth today and yet again humbled by the knowledge of his coming and his revelation, the revelation of the Son of God. Let's pray and reflect on God's word today. Let's rise from our seats and sing in response to God's word.
afternoon. We're so encouraged to be reminded uh, and taught through the transfiguration of Christ of who Christ truly is, the Son of God who came and died for us. We thank you and we hoped uh, that as a family and as the adoptive family in God that we one day will behold the radiance of God and of Christ and that we will behold his glory. We thank you God for the provision in life and from it we give to you this offering. We ask, O oh Lord, that it would be given by faith and used faithfully for the ministry of your church and for the ministry of the gospel to be made Christ known, uh, to, be, to exalt Christ wherever we may be found. Thank you so much, God, and we ask that we would be faithful stewards in all things in life, whether it be our time or effort as well. Please be with us and bless us uh, as only you can. We thank you and pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Quick time of announcements. Apologies. See, I told you the sermon would be long, right? I, I cut it down. It's, it was still long, right? My apologies. Anyways, welcome to Sheepgate. If it's your first time here, we thank you for being with us, and we welcome you. We look forward to getting to know you. Um, we definitely have some time later in fellowship where we'd love to engage with you if possible. Uh, so welcome, and uh, yeah, hopefully get to say hi and get to know you more. Uh, offerings can be sent via e-transfer to sheepgatefellowship at gmail.com. If you'd like to give, of course, towards our uh, missional efforts, both locally here on campus, broad in uh, Turkey, you can certainly uh, note that in the note section. We'll make sure those funds are allocated towards those things. Please, please, please uh, join us for fellowship uh, following service. Uh, we have some food prepared for us at our other building. Um, and so if you have some time and you're willing and able, uh, please join us for food and fellowship following service today. We are recruiting for our children's ministry. Now here's a little bit of a dilemma. We have a bunch of people who want to be teachers and have want nothing to do with the preparation. <laughs> and it's a little bit difficult right now because we don't have many people, or if anyone really, uh, volunteering for that aspect of the preparation for children's ministry. So I want to encourage you all uh, to reconsider, uh, to pray about it, like sincerely in your hearts. As your pastor, I'd like to uh, request that you do this. If you truly do have a heart uh, for children and for our children's ministry and the future of it, um, if you can prayerfully consider maybe being part of this team. You don't require any kind of skill at this point beyond being literate. So if you can read and you can write, it's totally enough. Because all we really need, and I, maybe I should have been more detailed in its introduction from the beginning, is we just need a couple, maybe a few, maybe like three people to dedicate a little time each month to read up on a couple things regarding children's ministry and then do a couple uh, visits with me to other PCA churches to see how they operate their children's ministry. And we want to kind of, you know, glean some of the things that are good and then just build a basic structure and curriculum for the beginning, the genesis of our children's ministry. It's not the be-all and end-all. What we come up with at the end of this year is not going to be what it will be for the next hundred, right? But just beginning and starting something together, I think it's an exciting thing. 
And children's ministry, I think, sometimes gets lost and like really, you know, sort of, you know, put aside. We treat it like a daycare at church sometimes. But that's really not what it is. We really want our Sunday school and our children's ministry to be a place where it's gospel saturated. The children are taught really healthy biblical, um, you know, stories and, and knowledge and theology. And we want to just saturate it with that. And all I'm asking is for some faithful people to just be part of that process. So if you like to consider, uh, I'd really like for you to encourage that. If you have some skill in teaching, certainly we'll need that later. Uh, but for now, we need the preparation component. So if you're willing to just dedicate a little bit of time each month to do that, um, I'd love to work with you on some of those things. So I'm hoping to have our, our uh, preliminary meeting uh, maybe at the end of this month and then uh, begin the process of that. So please prayerfully consider. I want to encourage you all to do that. We're also recruiting, of course, volunteers for our youth retreat, which seems to be a popular thing to volunteer for. Uh, next March, March break, we'll be hosting uh, hopefully what will be our first and maybe, you know, a long string of uh, future retreats for uh, youth in Toronto. Uh, we're hoping to, you know, uh, create a little bit of a reform conference for youth uh, so they can learn some good biblical things. So if you'd like to volunteer in any capacity, whether it be media, games, you know, finance, uh, whatever, right, anything at all, praise team, uh, please, please let me know, put you on the team. Uh, we'll start uh, planning for that very soon. Bible studies this Thursday. We had an incredible Bible study this last Thursday. Ask anyone that was there. It was really fun. Uh, we learned a lot of cool things. Uh, if you'd like to join us this Thursday, we'd love to have you there, 6.30 at church. Um, and uh, yeah, come hungry. It's a wonderful time to learn God's word. Uh, please continue your prayers for John and his family. His wife started chemo this past week, uh, just a few days ago, actually. And I uh, can't imagine. It was too pleasant. Um, it's a, you know... It's a grind. All of you who've had family members or loved ones uh, who've gone through some of this uh, understand some of the severity as well as the risk involved uh, and the pain that's involved with this. So please keep your prayers for them. Um, it's not the most encouraging of their seasons at this time, uh, especially with young children. Uh, so please, please, please keep them in prayer. We're praying for uh, really a full recovery, obviously, and uh, we're hoping for that. Uh, Visitation-wise, uh, I'm just kind of like, I don't want to like rush them or anything, so just waiting for a proper time. Might be end of this month, might be early next month. I'll let you know if you'd like to attend. They, uh, we'd love to, you know, just send a small contingency over to kind of encourage them in prayer um, and just be with them at this time. So that's John and Leon, if you could pray for them. Um, on a positive note, happy birthday to Ivy. Where is Ivy? Oh, she's behind Brian. Okay. Oh, is that Paul? I just see the hair. Is that Brian or Paul? Oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. Happy birthday. Uh, winter has come. Softball has ended. Uh, and so we are now in, uh, we're going to move our confessions over to um, our after uh, lunchtime. So no need to stick around here. Uh, Liz has an announcement of some sort. Phone. I should check my phone? Okay. Oh, yes. Can you let everyone know when they exist the parking lot? I, I assume you meant exit the parking lot. Uh, to exist, I assume you also meant exit there. Uh, on the left side, because the right side is painted, I think. Okay, so I don't know what that means. Oh, leave on the left side of the exit? Is that what it means? Yeah, here? Okay, perfect. Just avoid the paint. If there's new paint, just avoid it. We'll, we'll go out there and we'll, we'll, like, we'll figure it out, okay? 
beyond that, I think that's it. So if there's any other announcements, I'll let you know. But um, I think that is it. Let's rise and end with the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We'd love to see you at lunch, so please, please, please come. Jesus, oh, oh.